Hey, I, I do appreciate Brian Borden who's been with us the uh, past couple of weeks preaching, done a good job. I've been watching online and, and he started out our series on peacemakers talking about kind of the origins of conflict going all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Uh, Adam and Eve had their story of conflict and ever since then we've just kind of been repeating our own versions of that story. Um, Cain and Abel obviously as well. The first family had lots of conflict. Uh, and then he talked to us last week about bringing God into your world, really. Uh, how to bring God into your world even when there are uh, troubles and hostility in your world. And so we're going to continue this morning. But, I mean, what's clear, though, is we live in a world of hostility, a world of conflict. I mean, the headlines, whether it's a war over here, a battle being fought over here, you know, Syria, uh, Iraq is still kind of a mess, or a trade war, you know, maybe looming with China or whatever, uh, the TMZ headlines of whatever couple is getting divorced or breaking up this week, or our own, you know, our own personal headlines, uh, what's going on in your office, what's going on in your home with your teenage son or daughter, what's going on in your marriage, what's going on with your group of friends. Conflict is inevitable. It's part of life. If you're going to have real relationship with someone, at some point you're going to have some, some issues, some disagreements. Uh, I, in fact, I was thinking about John Scott this week. We even have conflict. We don't even need another person, right? I mean, I don't know about you, but what about the, the lack of inner peace, the turmoil we have when our own feelings are divided inside ourselves, our own thoughts are sometimes divided on, on different issues or different desires that we have. And so conflict is really a part of life, and so that's why we're talking about it. And the next couple of weeks, we're going to really be looking at a story that I think has, has a lot to say both about how we handle conflict poorly and how we can handle conflict well, this is in 1 Samuel chapter 25. Uh, you can follow along in the bulletin this morning as well as version, which is a free app for your phone or mobile device. Preston Crest is in that app under live events this morning. But scene one in 1 Samuel 25 opens on, I just see a day much like today. Just sunny and beautiful, the rolling hills of central Israel. And for as far as the eye can see, there are sheep. An idyllic pastoral scene. Sheep are grazing on these hills, and there are teenage girls and teenage boys who are the shepherds of these sheep, caring for their little portion of that greater flock. There are thousands and thousands of sheep who belong to this wealthy man named Nabal. Now, it is a peaceful scene. In fact, they have not had any of their sheep lost to bandits, none have been stolen. Uh, in fact, they haven't even seen someone show up and try to steal some of the sheep. And beyond this, they haven't even seen any predatorial animals. They haven't seen any lions or any wolves. It has really been just a perfect time of grazing for this flock. And if you look a little closer off in the distance, you see why. There are some silhouettes around those hilltops of some armed men who have been sentries of the sheep, have been protectors of those flocks, those men belong to David. Um, we know David, future king of Israel. He is currently on the run from Saul, and they have gotten far enough away from, away from Saul and his men that they too are enjoying a time of some tranquility. And David, who was himself a shepherd and understands the importance of safety and protection both for sheep and shepherd, has in this kind of 
waiting period has allowed his men to work on behalf of Nabal's sheep, protecting those flocks. Now, at one point, they wake up one morning, and there is kind of a buzz around the camps and a buzz around those, uh, those shepherds because it is sheep shearing time. So that means they're going to head off back to headquarters, back off to their boss, to Nabal's estate. And sheep shearing time is a good time. Basically, time to count the money. You shear those sheep, you collect that wool, you sell it, and the, the boss, as is tradition, will throw a banquet and don't think like you know, 7 p.m. To, to 8 p.m. on a Tuesday night. Now, this thing will roll for several days with food and drink and good times and music and, the, and free of charge for all of the employees of Nabal and his family. And there will be some bonuses handed out because, like I said, there haven't been any sheep lost, so maximum profits this year. So it will be a good time, except for a group that's going to get cut out that is not going to be welcome to this party. And we'll, we'll get to more of that here in a bit. But scene two is at Nabal's sprawling estate. And in a world, ancient Israel, where poverty is the norm, the struggle for survival is the everyday reality for most people. Nabal is the exception. This is, guy is kind of like a, a Jeff Bezos of ancient Israel. He is loaded. He has done very well for himself. 1 Samuel chapter 25, verse 2. A certain man in Moan, Nabal had property there at Carmel, and he was what? He was very wealthy. Very wealthy. So rich, successful, but that's not all he was. Like all of us, uh, we're complicated. And this guy had some layers to his personality that were just that. They were complicated. He had issues. <laughs> All right, And so the Bible tells us in verse 3 that he was, and I love this word, surly. What a great word. Um, he was surly and mean in his dealings. The Hebrew there is quaresh, which means he was a jerk. <laughs> Nabal was a jerk. Successful, yes. Prosperous, yes. Good boss, no. Good person, not really. Um, he had power, he had money, and he loved to use that power and that money to step on people and to hurt people. If this guy had a Twitter feed, it, was, it would have been sarcasm, it would have been negativity uh, all day long. He was hard to work for. He loved to, to crush his, his rivals and even belittle people who worked for him and who, who helped him. So right here in our story, we see kind of this this guy full of complicated issues on full display because there are issues between Nabal and David. David's men have been serving the flocks and shepherds of Nabal, and so when everyone is going to enjoy uh, kind of the rewards, the, the banquet, the feasting, and, and perhaps the bonuses that will come out of this sheep-shearing time, David wants to make sure, of course, that his men are included. So he sends ten of his servants, young men, down to Nabal's house to make sure that they are included in all of the, the goods that are going to be handed out during the sheep shearing time. So they go in and they ask Nabal 
about their payment. I can almost hear a fuse that's been lit. Nabal is about to blow up. Payment? Like, I, 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 I owe this David and his servants money or stuff? I never asked you guys to help protect my flocks. I never hired you. We never signed a contract. And you show up and you want my stuff. No. Nobody takes advantage of Nabal. Nobody. And so we have this story in verses 9 and 11, this kind of encounter. David's young men gave this message to Nabal in David's name and they waited for a reply. Nabal Who is this fellow David? He sneered to the young men. Who does this son of Jesse think he is? There are lots of servants these days who run away from their masters. Talking about David running away from Saul, running away from his master. Should I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've slaughtered for my shearers And give it to a band of outlaws who come from who knows where. Now, whether it's on Netflix or at the movie theater or in the book you're reading, we like our stories to have a hero and a villain or a heroine or a villainess. We like our good guys and bad guys. Our good guys or our good girls and bad girls. But in real life, we're more complicated than that. And we know that. All of us have a little... In us. <laughs> All of us have a little good and a little bad in us, and Nabal was certainly like the rest of us in that respect. I mean, in his defense, or from his point of view, he's kind of blindsided by this request to be paid. He truly, in his mind, has had and currently has no business relationship with David and his servants. He has not promised them anything. He did not vet them. He did not hire them. So he doesn't feel like he owes anything to these men and to their boss, David. In his mind, I think you could say this feels a little bit like a mafia protection scheme. Oh, you are protecting my sheep. You are protecting my servants. In other words, you you didn't kill my servants or steal my sheep. And so I'm supposed to pay you for that. I mean, it feels to Nabal, it feels like a shakedown. It really does. And he's having none of it. And so side note, this is kind of just interesting. If you read the Bible closely, you get all sorts of nuggets that are put in there. This fellow's name, Nabal, in Hebrew, it it means fool. Okay? I don't think his birth certificate had this name on it. I don't think his mother chose this name when he was born. I believe this is a nickname, I mean, that he earned over time through situations much like this one, probably. Um, So the servants of Nabal are watching their boss basically shout down these emissaries sent from David, insult them, offend them, uh, make fun of David himself, And they are worried, these servants of Nabal, because they know this guy David is not the kind of guy you want to tick off. 
He is the leader of a militia. He has hundreds of armed men camped perhaps just a few days' journey from where they live. And their boss is hurling insults. Their boss is provoking, is is almost trying to start a fight here. And they also realize, the servants of Nabal, they realize he really did serve us. He really did protect us and our flocks because of David and David's men. Nabal, the boss, is going to have a great profit margin this year. No sheep were lost. There's going to be more wool than ever. So they kind of have a point. We kind of, we kind of do owe them a cut of the profits here. So, the servants of Nabal, they act wisely. They sneak off, and they talk to the better half. And in this case, Nabal's wife really does give full meaning to that phrase, the better half. Abigail is her name. And the Bible tells us a little bit about her. It more shows us what she's like, and we'll talk about that more next week. What it tells us about her in verse 3 is the name of his wife was Abigail. The woman was discerning and beautiful. She was smart. She was clever. She was wise. She was everything her husband was not, and she was a knockout to boot. And you may be thinking, you know, how did these two end up together? How did, how did a guy like Nabal score a wife like Abigail? Two words, arranged marriage. Okay? No, she did not pick him out. He wasn't Prince Charming. Match.com didn't put these two together. Um, but they were together. Now, you may be thinking, okay, well, explain how you and Isla ended up together. Um, another word for that, that would be miracle, you know? God still works wonders, and I'm grateful for that. Um, definitely outkick my, my coverage on that. But um, So Abigail is married to Nabal. She's made the best of it. She's learned to love him. She genuinely, as you can tell as you read the story, she is looking out for the best interests of her husband. But if you want to read ahead in verse 25, you also see she knows her husband's a knucklehead. She knows he's a jerk. And so they come to Abigail, these servants, and they explain the situation. Look, Abigail, your husband has just greatly offended this fellow David and his servants who, by the way, have swords and are probably going to come down here in in search of, of some revenge because of how they've been insulted. And we know in the story that's exactly what was happening. As they're talking to Abigail, David is telling 400 of his men, strap on your swords, let's go even the score. And so we've got this cliffhanger. The story looks like it's headed toward death and destruction and bloodshed. Spoiler alert, we'll talk more about her next week, but Abigail listens to the servants. She says, I got this. And she's going to become the peacemaker in the story. But here's the thing. This story gives us a glimpse into the fact that different people manage or handle conflict in different ways. Some of those ways can be good, like Abigail. A lot of the times, we have default ways of managing conflict that are not good. Nabal's approach was not healthy. His approach was throw gasoline on the fire, insults, sarcasm. Let's make things worse. That's what he does. David's approach isn't any healthier. 
David's approach is, I've been offended. Men, strap on your swords. Let's go kill them. That's not a healthy approach to conflict either. And so I want us to do a little work as we think about ourselves. And since conflict is inevitable in relationships, and we've all experienced it, how do you handle conflict? Now, there may be a variety of ways that you have, but what is your main way? What is your default? Are you a person who runs to the fight? Are you a person who runs away? Are you an escapist? Are you fight or are you flight when it comes to conflict? And the funny thing is, for those of you who are married, God loves to put us together with someone who has a totally different conflict style. Uh, He did that with my wife and I, and so we learn from each other. It's part of growing together as we as we meld those two styles together. but uh, So the styles tend to align with either fight or flight. And the first one I have on your outline this morning is the pugilist. That is an old-time word for a boxer. The pugilist. This is a style of conflict. If you were born before 1960, uh, the catchphrase for the pugilist might be, put up your dukes. Eh? Uh, If you were born after 1960, it might be, let's get ready to rumble. Or maybe if you were born after 1990, it'd be, come at me, brah. All right? (laughs) The pugilists. Ah, they like a fight, man. They look forward to it. Let's do this. Um, There are these people, men and women, that just kind of bow up. uh, That do put up their dukes or or like David, strap on the swords. They want to even the score. They want to make things right. You hurt me, I'm going to hurt you, bro. And Jesus famously critiques this style because one of his apostles definitely leaned into this. For Peter, fighting was the default response, right? Apostle Peter, like they come to arrest Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Who's the guy that pulls out the sword and actually takes a swing at another human being? Peter cuts a guy. And that's when, they, uh, when Jesus famously critiques this style of managing conflict. Matthew 26, 52, Jesus told him, told Peter, Put your sword away. Anyone who lives by fighting will die by fighting. You've probably heard that uh, changed into that slogan, He who lives by the sword dies by the sword. So for the pugilist, you may win a few fights. You may come out on top sometimes, but at some point, the Lord says... You're going to pay a price. Now, the provocateur, or you could just put the provoker (laughs) there. The provocateur, this is another style of fighting, not with swords or fists, but with words. Um, And and both of these folks, the pugilists, the provocateur, they're they're drawing like moths to a flame to any place there's hostility, any place tensions are rising. And some people, they just seem to enjoy chaos and contributing to the spiral of chaos. Nabal is one of these people. Um, Things get stirred up, and he is hurling insults. Um, He is making matters worse. Uh, He is doing pretty much everything you shouldn't do. The book of Proverbs talks about a contrast between this style and the style that would be more peacemaking. Proverbs 15.1, A gentle answer turns away wrath. Is that Nabal? No. Second half is Nabal. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs it up. Stirs up anger. 
Now, is there a time to fight? Yeah. Is there a time to provoke, to raise issues that have been buried that need to be addressed, to bring the... Yeah, there is. But these are not good default styles of handling conflict. And then on to probably the least helpful of all of these fight responses would be the passive-aggressive style. You've probably heard that phrase before. Uh, it's the person who claims everything's fine. They know it's not. And they claim, ah, everything's good between us. No issues whatsoever. And they're plotting your demise. <laughs> Behind their scenes, they're trying to wreck you. That's pretty obvious. That's never the right approach. That's never helpful or healthy when it comes to conflict in our relationships. Now for the two, the two styles of conflict at the other end of the spectrum, at the flight end of the spectrum, because some of us are wired to run away when it comes to conflict, to get out of there, to disengage from situations where things get heated up. And let me say this, none of these styles we've talked about so far is biblical or healthy as a default style, not even running away. You see, Christians, we can fall for this lie, this myth, that conflict is bad. Christians, we're supposed to be peacemakers, so we are always like running away from conflict. That is not biblical. That is not good. Um, sometimes, yes, when, when there's a small offense or something, you can overlook that, and the right thing to do is just kind of be above that and move on. But when there are real issues, like in this story, there are substantive uh, complaints, grievances that need to be addressed Running away from those is not healthy. And so thinking that your Christian duty is to act like nothing is happening or to run away from conflict is the farthest thing from the truth. Did Jesus do that? Is that what Jesus... In the Gospels, did Jesus run away from the Pharisees? Did Jesus act like, ah, oh, we have no issues. We're No. Jesus got in there and talked about the stuff that needed to be talked about. Did Jesus avoid confrontations with people like Peter? No, get behind me. I mean, he'd call them out on stuff. So Jesus certainly didn't model that for us, and the Bible doesn't instruct disciples as peacemakers to run away from conflict. So it's a myth that conflict is bad. That's a myth. Conflict can be good or bad, right? It can be good or bad. It, depend, it depends on how it's managed, right? Now, I have no idea. This is just extra bonus material this morning. But I have no idea what's going to happen when Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un get together, or even if that's going to end up happening. But I can tell you this. When the leaders of the United States and North Korea get together finally, um, I, for one, hope they don't just hug on each other and pretend that everything's good because everything's not good. You're crazy, and you got nuclear weapons. That's not good, Okay. So the world is not going to be a safer place if they just say, we're great. Yeah, it's going to be a safer place if they actually talk about some of the stuff that separates our two countries and our two ways of thinking. Um, and the same goes for us. <laughs> the same goes for our relationships, right? It's, it's not honest. It's not helpful to ignore genuine interpersonal conflict, which gets us to the pretender. And this is kind of a default style that I've been working against uh, in my own heart 
for a long time. The pretender, the escapist. Uh, conflict. Nah, we're good. Everything's all right. And the pretender has decided that a great way to stay away from conflict or to, to not be hurt by conflict is to imagine that there's not one. Okay, the passive-aggressive person will say there's not one, but they know there is. The pretender can actually convince themselves, no, we're good. Now, some of us, our default response, a little bit different, is the, the pacifist. It's also on your outline this morning. The pacifist. Um, they don't pretend that there's no conflict or no hostility. They can see that there's a fight at work or in their home or with their friends. They just, if at all possible, avoid it, sit it out. If they have to be drawn into the conflict situation, the pacifist will seek the path of least resistance. Make concessions, get out of it as quickly as possible, and so you end up not really dealing with things. It's a very half-baked way to handle conflict. It's, look, there's a difference. This is my preferred way to kind of define things here. There are peacemakers, and there are peacemongers. Peacemongers either pretend there's not conflict or run away from it. Peacemakers engage it in a healthy way, seeking reconciliation, seeking to bring people together. All right? Now, back to our text. <laughs> Both Nabal and David adopted fight responses, hostile responses to the conflict. And that's why it's headed toward a potentially bloody end. And so the situation obviously requires a peacemaker. Somebody who is wise and good and God-centered and fair-minded needs to step up in this situation. Fortunately, that person is in the story, and that's Abigail. She is the peacemaker. She ends up negotiating with David. She ends up getting some payment, to some restitution to David and his men. She ends up, uh, because of her action, lives are saved. Literally, lives are saved in this story. But she had to take a risk, didn't she? She had to put herself in the middle in order to be a peacemaker. Being a peacemaker always requires courage. And thankfully, Abigail had that courage. And isn't that just like what Jesus did for us. Isn't that the story of the gospel? Before you get to the good news, there's plenty of bad news, and that's our sinfulness, right? I mean, God's righteous anger, His wrath was stored up against us and with good cause. He made us, He loved us, He stamped His image in us, and we have all gone the other way, the way of rebellion, the way of sin. And Jesus stepped in the middle. He became our mediator. Look, I respect world religions. I love people of all different faiths. But the story of Scripture is incredibly clear. There is exactly one mediator. That's Jesus. There is one who can make things right between us and God. One who can be Savior one who can be a ransom. Paul writes to Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, 5 and 6. There is only one God and one mediator 
Only one who can reconcile God and us, humanity. The man Christ Jesus. He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. This is the message God gave to the world at just the right time. This is the good news. And it is the only way anybody is made right with God. It is the only way anyone gets to come home to the Father who loves them. Now, you may say, I think there's another way. There is another way. I guess I was wrong with that. There's an option A and an option B. Option B would be just be perfect. Don't sin. And there will be no wrath of God stored up against you. There will be no justice that you have coming your way if you never sin. But that option is not open for any of us. Amen? We need Jesus. We need a Savior because we are sinners. And that's the good news. So the choice really is yours. I mean, you can stand before God on your own merit. Or you can stand before a holy and righteous God, clothed with Christ, based on the merit of the cross of Calvary and what it did for you. If you need to give your life to Christ this morning, you can do that. If you need to just surrender to the, to the peacemaker, Jesus, who bought your freedom, you can do that this morning. You can be baptized into Christ today. Maybe you just need prayers because we all have issues. We've all got some conflict going on. And maybe you just need to pray about something that you're wrestling with a situation or a person uh, that you're at odds with. And we would encourage you to come before the Father's throne, throne of grace, and pray it out. Pray with me or one of our shepherds or someone around you this morning. But whatever you need to resolve with the Lord today, do that as we stand together and worship.